Oh, precious Lord, help me to open your word this morning in a way that is meaningful and truthful and hopeful, Lord, and that gives you glory. Amen. In 1976, a group of hijackers seized control of Air France Flight 139. It was en route from Tel Aviv to Paris. Many of you will remember this. Most of you under the age, well, my age or younger probably won't, but it was pretty significant. The terrorist team responsible were officially lined to an organization called the PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Once in the air, they hijacked the plane, taking its 254 passengers and crew hostage and seizing control of the aircraft by force. They alerted the authorities that the plane was now under their control. The plane was tracked until it landed at Entebbe International Airport in Uganda under the apparent protection and cooperation of the then president, Idi Amin. There they remained in control of the hostages and over the next seven days, 148 non-Israeli passengers were released and flown to Paris. The remaining 94 Israeli passengers and the 12 crew members were held at gunpoint in one of the airport buildings under threat of death and torture. There, the terrorists began to negotiate for the release of Palestinian prisoners in exchange for the lives of their hostages. Meanwhile, in Tel Aviv, Israel sprang into action and deployed a team of elite commando soldiers. Soldiers especially trained for this kind of situation. Within hours, three planes carrying these commandos touched down at Entebbe Airport. Within 60 minutes of touching ground, they had captured the airport facility. Catching the hijackers off guard, they stormed the airport buildings, neutralizing the threat and recovering all but three of the hostages. But this kind of victory was not a new thing. It was not a new thing for Israel. This military action was one of the most daring, successful raids of its kind, and is still studied by the world's military as an example of how to conduct this type of operation. Their resolve, their stealth, their quick responses and military skill was recognized by both friend and foe around the world. But as I say, this kind of victory was not new. Last week, Emma, who by the way, had some of the hardest people and place names in the Bible to pr pronounce. So good job, Emma. Um, Emma told us about how Abram conducted a similarly incredible raid against the much larger coalition forces of four kings who were engaged with war, in war with the local people. And much like the passengers of Air France Flight 139, the people of Sodom, including Abraham's nephew Lot, had been captured and taken hostage under threat of death, torture, and enslavement. Abram had no elite commando force, uh, but he did assemble his fighting men, a significantly smaller force than the one he would be going up against. He gathered the 318 men in his command that were trained for war and with God's blessing, 
He set out to recover those taken hostage by the four kings. With great resolve and the audacity that only comes from knowing that God was with him, Abram and his men caught the enemy forces by surprise and routed them. It was a great victory. Abram was not simply a sheep herder. You know, we think of him as this, this sheep herder who roamed around, but he was not simply a sheep herder with nothing to do but pass the time in the country, counting his flock and, and looking up at the stars. In the time since his calling, God had already added to his wealth, his power, and grown him in stature as a strategic leader and man of God. Abram had already come a long way, which is apparent, because apart from anything else, he had a small army of 318 men to call upon. But this victory established him as a man of power and authority, and it made it clear to all that God was with him. 318 men might be a large army for one person to wield, but apart from it, it was impossibly small to take on the force of the kings. And yet victory was Abram's. The cities, the people, and all the plunders of war were liberated and retaken. This unlikely triumph made Abram and his God famous amongst enemies and allies alike. Abram the sheep herder was now Abram the warrior. Abram the liberator. And it's in this context that we find ourselves in scripture this morning. So please turn with me to Genesis 14, verses 17 to 24. <clears throat> After Abram returned from his victory over Kerdalama and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of the, most God, sorry, of the God Most High, bought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods that he had recovered. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong for what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say that I am the one who made Abram rich. I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten. And I request that you give a fair share of the goods to my allies, Anna, Ishol, and Mamre. <clears throat> Abram returns victorious to the valley of Shiva. And there he's met by these two kings. First, he's met by the king of Sodom, the very place that his, his nephew Lot had been captured from. So the king of Sodom, who had been under attack from the coalition force of these four kings that Abram had just defeated. Then comes the king of Salem, 
a man called Melchizedek, which is a spectacular name. I do recommend next time you're at Starbucks and they ask you for your name, <laughs> just give it a go. Then this Melchizedek fella, he is a curious figure, not only because of what we know about him, but also because of how little we know about him. He seemingly pops up out of nowhere to play a major role in the life of Abram and therefore the future nation of Israel and then disappears from the narrative just as quickly and just as mysteriously. So Melchizedek, is, this fellow is, is the king of Salem, which was wide, it's widely to believe to be either an earlier name of or shortening of the city name that would become Jerusalem. So he comes up to Abram with gifts and bread and wine, and bread and wine were significant because they were an established covenant meal. Not the new covenant meal that was established by Christ two years later, not the one that we celebrate, but in the days of Abram and Melchizedek, bread and wine were still commonly and used symbolically and without their knowledge, prophetically calling forward to communion that we, that we celebrate. Um, but it was used when covenants were made. So Abram and Melchizedek, they come together with this covenant meal. And as he brings this celebratory meal to honor and covenant with Abraham, we read something that always confused me. The writer of Genesis tells us that this king is not just a king, he is also a priest of the God Most High. In this man, we have the extremely unusual combination of both king and high priest. Melchizedek then publicly blesses Abram saying, blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemy into your hands. He blesses Abraham and in recognition of his kingly priesthood, Abram gives a tenth of the spoils that he had won in battle. This is a huge deal because it's a prophetic act of sacrificial worship to God in recognition of Melchizedek as both king and priest. 1 Samuel 8 tells us that a tenth is the king's share. We also see that when the Levites later are set, are set up as the priesthood, the priesthood is given a tenth share. Melchizedek doesn't ask for anything, but Abram recognized that he is king and priest and out of reverence for God, submits to this unknown king's authority and gives him a tenth. And with this, Melchizedek seems to disappear from the narrative again, just as quickly as he appeared. But don't let the length of his appearance in this story fool you. This is a significant moment in the history of God's people. So much so that Melchizedek is referred to again twice in scripture. Once in Psalm uh, 110, where he's described as a priest forever. And again in Hebrews, where he is described as a priest of God without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, which is a reference to the fact that unlike every subsequent, subsequent priest, who had to prove via genealogy that they were actually related to Levi. He didn't have to do that. 
He didn't need this genealogy. His appointment as a priest was not by lineage. It was not by, it, but it was not by lineage, but it was by the appointment of God. Melchizedek was a priest long before Levi, one of Abraham's descendants, is even born. So however you slice it, this guy is, he's a pretty mysterious fella. And speculation about who Melchizedek was has been debated through the years. Some say he was an angel. Others believe him to be the pre-incarnate Christ. Looking at the evidence both inside and outside of the Bible, it seems likely to me that whilst many of his unique characters point forward to Christ, he was in fact a literal man who was both king and priest. Though the evidence is far from conclusive, so I'm happy to be corrected on that one. But rather than falling down the rabbit hole of what we don't know, let's focus on the few things that we do know. He and Abram lived in a time and a place known for its corruption and its violence. The kings of the plains were kings of unrighteousness, ruling over cities that were known for their sin and depravity. Yet in the middle of it all was a man whose name means king of righteousness. Melchi meaning king, Zedek meaning righteousness. He was the king of a place called Salem. As I said, considered by many to be the future site of Jerusalem. But Salem itself means peace. So he was also easily described as a king of peace. So after giving us details of this incredible battle, Genesis introduces us to a righteous man of peace. Melchizedek had not been part of the battle, nor was he among those who had been defeated He simply came as a priest of the God Most High, bringing bread and wine to celebrate Abram's victory. And then he blessed Abram, primarily by bringing praise to God. He doesn't congratulate Abram on his victory, but declares that he is blessed by God. And that this great victory was a gift from God, who handed Abram's enemies into his hands. He points all the glory that Abram had accumulated in victory firmly in the direction of God. And in recognition of this, Abram responded in kind. As Abram walked over the horizon of his homeland, he brought with him all the freed slaves, all the spoils of battle. He might well have seen this as the way that God would give to him the land and make him a great nation. He could have claimed all the lands and all the people for himself. He had conquered it all. If these kinds of thought had entered his head, then his encounter with Melchizedek had surely put an end to them. Melchizedek celebrated with Abram and declared that it was Abram's God alone who had given the victory. Then we meet the other king in this story. Whereas Melchizedek saw only to uh, bless and to minister to Abraham, and, sorry, Abram, as he was at that point, and his men, and in doing so, he receives a tenth share. The king of Sodom comes with his hand out, looking to take what he believes to be his share. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Abram could have refused to give anything to the king of Sodom. 
He could have tried to shortcut his way to God's promise by claiming the land and people that God had given into his hands as the fulfillment of God's promise. But he knew that is not what God had said. He knew that God's promise was that his descendants would become a great nation and be the vehicle of the coming Messiah. He didn't want anyone, certainly not the immoral king of Sodom, to be able to claim that he and not God was the reason for Abram's flourishing into a great nation. Abram had once before allowed his impatience and his weakness to lead him to trying a shortcut to receiving God's promise. When instead of trusting God's promise that he would have children with his wife Sarai, he had a son with his servant. Having learned his lesson, he decided to forsake all routes to God's promise, but the path that God had prepared and laid out before him. After his encounter with Melchizedek, he chose to surrender the power, the wealth, and the people that God had placed in his hands in favor of the greater promise that would be fulfilled through faithfulness to God's great promises. Much like when God asked him to lay his future on the altar in Isaac, Abram once again laid his future on the altar, surrendering the nation he had conquered to the king of Sodom as an act of worship and of trust in God's promises for him and for the nation to come. Abram returned from the battle in the same way he went into battle, a humble servant of God. By faith, Abram was convinced that the spoils of battle were nothing compared to the promises of God. Above any wealth, any success, Abram sought to glorify the name of God. He understood that anything that might detract from God's glory and honor was wrong and something he wanted nothing to do to avoid like the plague, even when it came at a personal cost. Freedom Church, I wonder, can we honestly say our devotion to God is like that? Abram had every right to take the spoils of his victory, and yet he laid them down so that the world would see the name of God lifted up. What, I wonder, are we willing to lay down in our lives to see God lifted up? What are you willing to give up so that God would be glorified in it? Are your social media posts longer than your prayers? Are you spending more time talking about football than about the risen king? Do you give so much of your... No, nor me, nor me. Do you give so much of your attention to Netflix or your career or anything else that you neglect to spend time in his presence? What do we need to lay down to raise God up in our lives? What have we given his throne to? Have we become so attached to our hard-won possessions that we've begun to trust in them rather than the promises of God? 2 Corinthians 5.1 reminds us, for we know that when this earthly tent that we live in is taken down, we will have a house 
in heaven. An eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. There is nothing, nothing in this life that comes close to the beauty, the truth and the joy of loving God with our whole hearts and trusting fully in him and his promises. This is not simply about putting down the things of this world either, but also the cares of this world that would take our eyes from God and rob him of the glory he is due. We are living in a moment right now where there is war in Ukraine. People are dying in floods and famines. Our very body here is touched by cancer. We are in a time of personal and national mourning. How do we respond in the face of that grief? In the face of severe illness, in the face of wealth and success or poverty and lack, do we seek to gain and hold on to what we can in our own strength? Or like Abram, will we choose to trust in the sovereignty of the Father and the fullness of his provision? Like Melchizedek, will we direct our hearts and circumstances of our lives towards the glory and the provision of the Most High God? Will we lay hold by faith of the promises of God? Melchizedek called Abram to give God the glory. We have been called by one much greater. We have been called by one so much greater than Melchizedek to bring honor and glory to the living God. Not simply a king, but the king of all kings. Not simply righteous by name, but one who is righteousness. Not simply a priest, but the high priest of heaven who sits at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. The wonderful counselor. The Prince of Peace, the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, in whose name and by whose blood we are assured of a treasure far beyond any earthly parallel. It's he who's calling us to put aside our trust in things that this world has to offer. To sacrificially lay down the cares of this world that would paralyze our hearts in fear. And instead, lean hard on his everlasting arms and put our hope and trust in him to, to go deeper into that cave that Sharon was talking about. Further up and further in. He is the Lord of all. His words are true. His faithful love endures forever. His promises stand. He will not be moved. He will not be shaken. In all things, he has the supremacy. God is sovereign and we will, we must follow Abram's example and lay aside all things, all thoughts, all fears, all joys, all earthly pleasures, all sorrows and treasures of this world and trust in the one who promises life in abundance and fullness of joy.
as I said, we are in a strange time. <laughs> I've never, I don't think I've ever, I'll probably have lived through a time of, of national mourning before. Um, one of the things that, that as a country is happening, it's tonight we're having a, a moment's silence to honor the Queen. I'd like to take a moment's silence this morning together as a body. And yes, we can honor the Queen in that. But I would also like to use this, this moment of silence for us to contemplate what it is that we can put down that he can be glorified. What cares of this life are paralyzing us that we need to lay on the altar? What comforts are we taking from this world that, that we're leaning on too much that we can lay down and say, Father, this, yes, this is mine, but I give it to you because I believe your promises. Oh, when you say them, Lord, they will be done. I would choose to trust you this day. And, and, and finally, let's use this moment of silence to contemplate the sovereignty of God. Lord, we surrender all earthly treasures, all earthly concerns that, that draw us from you. Lord, let anything that is not of you, anything that's not righteous, anything that's not build, built on a foundation of biblical truth, 
Lord, any falsehood we've constructed for an easier life or lies we've told ourselves to quiet the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Lord, any illusions of not needing you every second of every day be consumed like chaff in the raging furnace of sanctification. Lord, let it be vaporized and destroyed, obliterated and devoured, leave nothing but a white-hot spirit, pure and defined, burning with desire for you. Lord, let us be hammered and shaped and forged in your likeness, fortified in your word and quenched in the merciful blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, stoke up flames of passion. Lord, an overwhelming desire to see your kingdom come and your will done on earth as in heaven. Lord, give us a passion for the poor, for the lost, for the weak, for those that desperately need to encounter the living God. Lord, produce in us an incurable thirst for justice and integrity. Let worship forever be on our lips. Lord, cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Let us love the unlovable with your outrageous standards. That we may better reflect the glory of the Father. Provoke the conviction of the Holy Spirit in those who recognize the hand of Christ Jesus in our life. Lord, like Abram, we recognize that any victory we have in this life is yours. And any sorrow, any loss, any pain, though it is promised to us, is for but a moment. This tent is not our home. We have a room in the Father's house. Lord, be glorified in our lives. In our joy, in our pain, in our fears, in our successes, in all of it, Father. The battle belongs to you, and the victory is won. Amen.